the book of Jude, please. If you're with us for the first time today, you'll find the book of Jude there toward the end of your New Testament. You go to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and then go back one more book and you'll find Jude. Of course, the scriptures will be available on the screen for you as well in case you do not have a Bible. We are looking together verse by verse through this little letter. We have covered verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. And now we look at together this morning verses 5 through 10. Uh, to make sure we understand the full context of it all, I'm going to begin reading at verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Because certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also, these dreamers, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when... He disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these, they speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally like brute beast, in these things they corrupt themselves. Those who are always looking for a fight come to the book of Jude with great satisfaction. But that is a gross miscalculation of what the half-brother of Jesus intended when he wrote this little letter appealing to believers to contend for the faith. Jude is not a brawler. He's not seeking an excuse to spur another controversy. He's not known for what he's Against or what he's boycotting this week. He is genuinely concerned about that which really matters. The faith. The faith. The, the essential truths that make up the gospel message of Je Jesus Christ. Remember, as we've already covered, the faith in verse 4. It's not traditions. It's not preferences. It's not debatable matters of Christian liberty. It's not even secondary or tertiary doctrines. Jude is talking about the essential truths that make up the gospel. The inerrancy of Scripture and sufficiency of Scripture. 
the virgin birth, sinless life, and deity of Jesus Christ, his substitutionary death on the cross, his glorious resurrection from the dead, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the establishment of the church through the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ and the return of Christ and his judgment upon all people. These are the essential truths that make up the gospel faith. And it is these things that Jude appeals to us to contend for. And he says it clearly that these truths are of the one and only gospel faith. God is not going to send us another gospel, nor are there many gospels by which we get to God. There is a one gospel, an only gospel, and that is the gospel that we are to contend for. That is with great energy, we are to devote our lives to the faith of the gospel and defend it at all costs, if necessary. The structure of Jude's letter is pretty straightforward. Uh, So far in verses 1 and 2, we see who wrote it along with a warm greeting affirming who we are and what we have in Christ. In verses 3 and 4, we see what the letter is about. That contending for the faith because there are certain people who creep into the church. We called them intruders, creepers. They come in unnoticed and they seek to distort and deny the essential truths of the faith. And now we come to verses 5 through 10. And what we have here are some examples of how this has happened before. And how it is that we can spot them now. So really straightforward and let's look at these verses together. Number one, the first thing that I wrote down as a header here over verses 5 and through 7 is simply this, remember that this has happened before, okay? Remember that this has happened before. The whole idea back in verse 3 and 4 that certain people are going to creep in, ungodly intruders are going to come into the church and take away from the faith or diminish the truth of the gospel that we have been or we have received from God's word. That this has happened before, Jude says. Look at verse 5. He says, I want to remind you. I want to remind you. Reminders are important, aren't they? There are lessons from the past that we need to remember in order to navigate both the present and the future. This is why it is so important that we commit ourselves to being daily in the word. Through Bible reading, Bible study, Bible meditation, we recall the things that we have a tendency to forget. And when we forget those things, we are setting ourselves up for failure by repeating the same old mistakes. So we need to be in the Bible daily, reading God's Word, learning from these stories, meditating on these lessons over and over again in our lives so that we do not find ourselves in the same spot. That's what Jude is calling us to do. He's calling us to remember the past. Because the past proves 
that ungodly imposters or ungodly intruders will always be present. He recalls three Old Testament examples in verses 5, 6, and 7 to help us not only spot them, but to ensure that we do not become one of them. Because the judgment of God is reserved for these people. Now, follow the examples with me that he calls us to remember. He says, number one, in verse five, I want you to remember the unbelief of Israel. I want you to remember the unbelief of Israel. Verse five, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. This is a reference to Numbers chapter 14. God had delivered Israel out of Egypt. He sent plagues. You'll remember he parted the Red Sea. He destroyed Pharaoh's army. He provided manna for them to eat. He was their glory cloud by day. He was their pillar of fire by night. But although God made himself known to them, they still would not believe him. Over and over again, we read of their story. They found themselves faithless. They didn't trust him. Even as they approached the promised land, they didn't believe that God could defeat their enemies and give them the land. So with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, all of those who were 20 and older, if you'll remember there in the book of Numbers, they dug their own graves in the wilderness right there within sight of the land that God had promised the nation of Israel. All because they would not believe. They would not believe. After all they had seen, After all they had experienced, after all God had done for them, with each step of the way, they still would not trust him. They still would not believe him. It's as if they lived in between two different great acts. They look back and they see the great act of deliverance in Egypt. They look forward and they see the great act of crossing over the Jordan into the promised land. But even though they look back and they see what God did in Egypt, they still could not believe that he could actually take them over into the land. And you and I live between two great acts today. We look back and we see the cross. We see what God has done through his son. But maybe there are some here sitting this morning that even though you see the past of what God has done, you still can't believe that he can save you, that he can forgive you, that he can take you into the land that he has promised. Unbelief. Unbelief. And Jude explains here is that ungodly intruders, they are marked by a heart of unbelief. They are marked by a mind of skepticism toward God. So he says, this has happened before. You know, these these people who creep into your church and they cause you to question the truth of God, to not believe him, to not trust him. This This has all happened before. Just remember the unbelief of Israel. And then he calls us in verse 6 to remember the rebellion of angels. The rebellion of angels. Look at verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. 
Now, to me, this seems to be a reference to the fall of Satan and those angels who fell with him as a result of their rebellion against God. Now, time will not allow me this morning, but you can write down Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. You can see where all of this is recorded for us and how it happened. They rebelled against God because they wanted to be like God. And therefore, they were cast out of heaven. But let's think about it for a moment. What was it that actually marked their rebellion? I'll tell you what it was. They were not happy with the position or the place God had given them. They wanted something more. They wanted something better. And because they were not happy with the place and the position that God had given them, they ultimately rebelled against God. And listen to me very clearly this morning. All acts of rebellion start when the mind is convinced that what God has chosen for me is not what's best. All acts of rebellion begin when the mind has convinced itself that what God has chosen for me is not what's best. And some of us are on the verge of rebellion today because we don't like the place God has put us. We don't appreciate the position that He has given to us. We want something different. We want something more. We want something other than what we have right now. And that, my friend, is where rebellion begins. And what Jude wants us to see is that these ungodly intruders that creep into the church, they are consumed by these things. Like the fallen angels, like Lucifer, they're consumed by a lust for position and power and prestige and possessions they're not happy with what God has chosen for them and they'll do whatever they must to advance their own plans rebellion he says look guys this has happened before think think, think about Israel and their unbelief God judged them for that think about the angels who weren't happy with what God had given them so they so they rebelled in order to have something different Have something better to to claim the position that they wanted. But yet God judged them for that. And then he gives us a third illustration in verse 7. He calls us to remember the immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah. So remember the unbelief of Israel. Remember the rebellion of angels. Remember, thirdly, the immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these... That is, Sodom and Gomorrah was not the only one that had an issue. There was a lot of cities around them that had the same issue. And here was their issue. They had given themselves, verse 7, over to sexual immorality, and they went after strange flesh. So they're set forth as an example. Suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now here's the thing about Sodom and Gomorrah. As a land... They were in a beautiful position. The Bible tells us that the plains around Sodom and Gomorrah and the other city, they were well watered like the garden of the Lord. They were in a prime position for God's greatest blessings. However, the people... 
They were known for their sexual lawlessness, arrogance, injustice, bigotry. And as a result, God brought down burning sulfur from the sky and he destroyed the cities. And let's be honest, few events in history have impacted the people of God like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, it is referenced more than 20 times in the Bible after its destruction in Genesis chapter 19. And it's referenced for the same reason it's referenced here in verse 7. Sodom and Gomorrah serves as an example to us. It's a warning that speaks to the seriousness by which God judges sexual sin. Of course, the dominant issue with sexual sin in Sodom and Gomorrah was homosexuality. He says it clearly again in verse 7. It's not only had they given themselves over to all kinds of sexual immorality, but specifically, they had gone after strange flesh. They did that which was unnatural with their flesh. It's a description of sodomy, homosexuality. I think it's important to note a few things here. Humbly, seriously, and compassionately. Number one... Homosexuality is a sin. It's a sin. Both the Old and the New Testament is very clear on this. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy chapter 1, they all clearly mention the sin, the sin of homosexuality. But listen to me very clearly, Bible believers. Any sexual activity, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual, outside of the marriage covenant between a man and a woman, any sexual sin for that matter, activity, is a sin. So may we take as serious our own sinful lusts as we do those we are so quick to throw rocks of judgment after. It's also important to note that sexual immorality is not the unforgivable sin. Sexual immorality is not the unforgivable sin. I give you just one verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, after he lists all the people and their sins that dominate him who will not make it into the kingdom of God. He talks about drunkenness and adultery. He talks about being disobedient to parents. This whole list of things. In that list, he talks about homosexuality. Being a sin among other sins. But then when you get to verse 11, he says to those Christian people, he says, but such were some of you. Were some of you. You're not that anymore. You may have committed adultery. You, you may have had sex before marriage. You may have had moments of drunkenness in your life and addictions and homosexuality and disobedience to parents and all this kind of stuff. But, but that was the old you. That's not you anymore. God has saved that man or woman. God has forgiven that man and woman. And thank God, no matter what sin it is that we commit in life, God still promises to forgive it. 
You could be wrapped up in it today. I want you to know that God loves you. And he will forgive that sin. May God help us not to look, look at those who are addicted to sexual sin as if they are irredeemable. I pray every week that God will send sexual addicts to our church. I want homosexuals sitting in this platform, or sitting in this, these pews, in this building. I want them to hear that God loves them and there's a better way. And that God will forgive them if they'll just repent and turn to Christ. Let us be clear. It is a sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin. I, I wrote this down. All sexual sinners need to be loved, including those who identify as LGBTQ. As Bible-believing Christians, we have a message that neither the political left or the political right has when it comes to this issue. The political right, you're of no value. You're worthless. The political left, God accepts you as you are. Just keep doing whatever you want to do. There's just extreme sides, right? Christians don't have that message. You know what our message as Christians is this? Humbly, what you're doing is wrong. But God loves you. What you're doing is wrong, but you are loved. You are loved. You are loved. And that, my friends, is where the gospel shines through. Not intolerance, not embracing it as if God is pleased with it, but by telling the truth. It is sin. It is wrong. To continue in this will be to destroy your life. And I want you to know that I love you and there is hope in Jesus Christ. All sexual sinners need to know that they are loved, regardless of what your sexual sin is. Pornography. Adultery, sex before marriage, homosexuality. But let us be clear here, okay? When you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, Romans chapter 1, rampant sexual sin is one of the clearest evidences of a society that has rejected God and has been given over to God's judgment. And so what's Jude's point in all of this? Uh, some who are put even in the best positions, like the well-watered plains of the gospel. They are put in the best homes, the best of churches, the best positions. Even those people at times will embrace sexual rebellion. They will indulge in sexual rebellion. They will even promote sexual rebellion as acceptable to God. Oh, it's not sin. There's nothing wrong with it. Love who you want to love. You're all welcome. Listen, I want people to know they're all welcome. But God makes it very clear. God makes it very clear. That I am a sinner separated from him. And in order to be right with him, I am to repent of my sin and turn to faith in God. But subtly voices will creep up into the church who will begin to rebel against God's word when it comes to sexual morality. 
And this is what Jude is trying to emphasize by these illustrations. He's saying here, what the church is experiencing in the form of ungodly intrusion. This has all happened before. This has all happened before. And you can spot them. They come questioning God, not trusting Him, unbelief, unbelief, and, 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 and they're marked by rebellion. They, they refuse His Lordship. They deny the authority of the Bible. And whether you realize it or not, they are consumed. They are consumed with the passions of their lust. Immorality. Immorality describes their life. And Jude says, those people are marked for judgment. So now what he does when we come to verse number 8 is he takes the history of the past and he brings it into the present. And this is what Jude says. Write write down the second header here in my notes, and it's over verse 8. These people are those people. All right? These people in the church that I'm trying to warn you about are those people that I just told you about. These people are those people. Look at it in verse number 8. Likewise, Also, likewise, also, these people are those people. These people resemble those people. Well, what people? You know, these certain people, verse number four, who are creeping into the church unnoticed. They're distorting the grace of God, and they're denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. These people that you see popping up into the church, they are acting like those same people that God warned us about and judged for their own sin. And he wants us to know that these people, like those people, are also marked for the same judgment of God. Verse number 8, Jude calls these certain people dreamers. Do you notice that there? Likewise, all these, these dreamers, these dreamers. By the way, it's not a compliment. He's calling them phonies. These phony visionaries, these ungodly intruders, they're they're always talking about their dreams and their visions and their intellectual imaginations, but they're never talking about God's word. And that's the problem with these people. Their dreams, their intellect, their education, their imaginations, it's all about that. And they claim that that message is from God. Jude says, be careful. Because we understand that the Word of God is our sufficiency. We don't base our beliefs and behaviors on what we dream about. If I did that, I'd be one messed up human being. I could never explain my dreams. We don't take our imaginations and our visions and somehow say that this is what God wants me to do or this is what God is leading me to do. No, no. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And that is an essential truth of the gospel that we are called to contend for. We don't take the scripture and people's dreams. We don't take the scripture and their intellect. No, no, no. We take the scripture and scripture alone. Because God's word is sufficient for us. And it is God's final revelation to man. So Jude's giving us a little little insight. He said, here's how you spot these people. You may not be aware of their unbelief and rebellion and immorality, but here's one of the first things you can see about them is that they never talk about the Bible. They never talk about the Bible. It's always about what they think, what they believe, how they feel, the dreams they've had. 
Their authority and sufficiency is not in Scripture. Oh, may we be people of the book. You come to me and say, Pastor, I need some help. Here's the first thing we're going to do. We're going to sit down and say, well, let's see what the Bible says about this. What does the Bible say about this? And then he goes on in verse 8 to say a couple of things. He said, these people, these dreamers, they defile themselves. He's talking about those people who creep into the church today. They, they defile themselves, verse 8. Likewise, these dreamers, they defile the flesh. They defile the flesh. Again, even if it's not publicly known, these people are wrapped up in the passion of their lust. But let me remind us as a church family, when we begin to see the loosening of sexual morality or the acceptance of such behavior, it is a sign that the presence of ungodly intruders are there. They defile the flesh. Not only do they defile the flesh, but verse 8 says these are people who are defiant against authority. They reject authority, verse 8 says. Specifically, they reject lordship. Lordship, that's the word that is used. Curios, it's the same word that he used back in verse 4 when it says they deny our Lord Jesus Christ. They deny his lordship. He, he reemphasizes it here in verse 8. They are rejecting the lordship of Jesus Christ. They don't mind coming in on Sundays and singing songs that ascribe lordship to Jesus, but they are certainly not living their lives submitting to his lordship over them. And this is, of course, why they defile themselves. They go their own way. They indulge in whatever lust they desire because they are their own Lord. They are their own Lord. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It is unbiblical and (coughs) self-deceiving. It is unbiblical and self-deceiving to separate Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. It is unbiblical and self-deceiving to separate Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. He is either your Savior and your Lord, or he is neither one at all. You can't have Jesus as Savior unless you recognize him as your Lord. So important that we understand that because these voices, these ungodly intruders, they deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. All they want is his grace. All they want is his saving power to forgive them of whatever they are going to do today, tomorrow, and the rest of their lives. No, he is either Lord and Savior or he is neither one. They are defiant against Jesus' lordship. Be careful of those voices who downplay the lordship of Jesus. It's a mark of an imposter, of an intruder, or at best, someone who totally misunderstands the person of Christ. All right? Number three, these people are disrespectful toward the sacred things of God. (coughs) These people are disrespectful toward the sacred things of God. Verse 8, they speak evil of dignitaries. Now, this is a difficult passage for me to translate because this word is translated so many different things in English. Some cases you see the word translated as angels. Sometimes you see it as the glory of God. Sometimes you see it as heavenly things. Here, it's dignitaries. I think our point hits as close to it as we can get. This is the sacred things of God, whether it's referring to his angels or his glory or his heavenly being or his creation altogether. This is the sacred things of God. 
And these ungodly intruders, they come into the church and they diminish the sacred things of God. (coughs) They disrespect the sacred things of God. So let's put all of this together in one quote and then I'm going to give you the final point. Dick Lucas said this, It looks as if the issue facing Jude was that these dreamers are laying claim to positions of leadership within Jude's church. And the members are too sleepy to notice what is being smuggled in under their noses. Jude has made his position clear. Such people will have to face the punishment that all rebels against God have faced. God the judge cannot be avoided. And that's the point of all of this. This has happened before. This has happened before. Unbelief, rebellion, immorality, springing up into environments that we would think godliness should prevail. This has happened before. And I want you to know what you're seeing today. These people are those people. that They're very similar. Very similar. They reject the lordship of Jesus. They diminish God's word. And they constantly, constantly are disrespectful toward the sacred things of God. The sacred things of God. I'll leave that with you to figure out. But let me just give you this one final header, verses 9 and 10. The ultimate test, I wrote down here, the ultimate test, again, the ultimate test of these creepers, these intruders, the ultimate test is in one submission to God's authority. The ultimate test is in one submission to God's authority. Again, the test of whether or not these people are indeed ungodly intruders is found in their position Their position toward God's authority. His holy word. That's what we talk about when we're referring to the authority of God. His holy word. What is their position to his word, toward his word? Look right here, church. All other actions in our life flow from that position. Everything we do, say, think, act, believe, behave, it all flows on how we view this book. Do we view it as the inspired authority of God? And that is how we ultimately spot imposters, intruders. They creep into the church and they start questioning the authority of God. It's interesting here, the illustration that he chooses to use. And it's quite difficult, I'll be honest. But look at it there in verse number 9. We read it a moment ago. He says, yet Michael the archangel, again, he's, he's using the word yet to describe how Michael approached things differently than the intruders did. They defile the flesh. They are disrespectful to the sacred things of God. They're defiant against the lordship of Jesus, but not Michael the archangel. No, no, no. When he contended with the devil, verse 9, and disputed about the body of Moses, he dared not to bring an accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, if you're reading that like I did for the very first time, I'm thinking... Huh? What? What does this mean? Well, let's stop here for a moment, okay? First thing. This interaction between Michael the archangel and Satan, it's not recorded in Scripture. So we're not privileged with any other scriptural insight other than what we have right here. Our best guess, based on other literature is that Satan wanted the body of Moses for his own purposes. 
Now, what would have those purposes been? I don't know. Perhaps he wanted the body of Moses for some type of idolatrous purpose to deceive people who revered Moses so well. Perhaps he wanted to deal with the body of Moses in the same way that he would deal with or that, that, that God would choose to deal with wicked, immoral people because of the things that Moses had done. For example, murdering a man. We, we don't know. It's, it's, it's a whole conjecture. We, we have no idea exactly why Satan wanted the body of Moses. But you can find other places in Scripture where this is not an uncommon thing, okay? But this particular situation, it's, it's not recorded anywhere else. So what do we know? Well, what we do know is that instead of taking matters into his own hands when it came to this argument against Satan, Michael, the archangel, knew his rightful place. That is clear here. He knew his rightful place, and instead of taking matters into his own hands, he simply spoke the word of God to Satan. So we see what he spoke. He said to him, instead of arguing, instead of accusing him, instead of reviling him, okay, he simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, on the surface, we may think, okay, what's the big deal? The Lord rebuke you. We can say that anytime, anywhere. Well, he's actually quoting scripture. This is an exact quote from Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 2 when the Lord said the very same thing to Satan. So in this encounter between the Lord and Satan and Zechariah, the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. God rebuke, God deal with you. God deal with you. So Michael the archangel, instead of taking things into his own hands, instead of reviling, instead of accusing him, instead of recognizing himself for anything more than what he is, just a creature, not a creator, he just quotes scripture. He looks at him and says the very same thing that Jesus said. The Lord rebuke you. God deal with you. God deal with you. <laughs> you say, Pastor, I still don't understand. Oh, oh, hang tight. Michael is being used by Jude as an example for us. Because remember, Michael knows his place. He knows his place. He's a creature, not the creator, a servant, not the sovereign, a minister, not the master. As great as he is, he knows his proper place in God's plan. He knows his proper place. He understands his position. And that's something ungodly intruders and false teachers fail to grasp. Again, we go back to the point before about the rebellion of the angels. They want something better. They want something more. They lust after power and position and possessions and prestige. But, but Jude says, no, follow Michael's example. He knows his place. He knows his place. He understands his role in God's kingdom. He's not arrogant. He's not haughty or rebellious or prideful. He sees himself as a servant to God's holy word, to God's holy authority. But, verse 10 says, and this is where we close. But these, but these, okay, we're back to the ungodly intruders again. But these, well, they speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally. Like brute beasts or unreasonable animals. Do any of you own an unreasonable animal? <laughs> 
I don't have time to tell you a quick story, but I have an unreasonable animal in my home. Brute beast. And because of their unreasonableness, they corrupt themselves. So, so again, he's saying they don't speak the word of God. They don't speak it, watch this, because they don't truly know it. They don't understand it. Look at it again. They speak evil of whatever they do not know. And so since they don't understand it, since they don't know it, what do they do? They speak evil of it. They criticize it. They slander it. They belittle it. They diminish the word because they don't know the word. We all have a tendency to be like this, by the way. If something is being taught or practiced that we don't understand, instead of trying to understand it, we're very quick to identify the teaching or position as liberal. Just liberal. But it's not that you really think that. It's that you don't take enough time to actually know it and to understand it. And so instead of taking the time to know it and understand it, we just speak evil of it. We criticize it because we don't understand it. Had the same conversation with a pastor friend of mine this week. We were talking about a, a well-known, respected man in evangelical circles. He said to me, he said, Jonathan, what's, what's everybody's beef with him? He said, I don't get it. I said, their beef with him is is he is so in tune with God's word and intellectually gifted that he speaks about the things of God in a way that they don't understand it. And so instead of trying to understand it, they simply call him a liberal. May that not be true of us. May we be like the Bereans who search the scriptures daily whether these things are so. We discover these things for ourselves instead of riding on the coattails of traditions what we've always heard, or what makes best political sense for us. It's clear, isn't it? These imposters, these intruders, they, they speak evil of it because they don't know it. They don't know it. But if we'd simply get in the Word and study these things, we might actually understand God's will and purposes. Jude says that these people who refuse to submit to God's word are like brute beasts, unreasonable animals. That is, whatever they know and do, it's not even spiritual. It's natural. It's, it's of the flesh. It's of the flesh. They think from the flesh. They choose from the flesh. They vote from the flesh. They contend from the flesh. They look at the circumstances of their life right now and how inconvenient it is for them. And it's all built around the flesh. The flesh. They're like unreasonable animals, always yapping. Ah! Listen to me. No matter how highly educated or profoundly articulate, at the end of the day, they are animals who operate on the will of their own flesh. And as a result, they're corrupting themselves. That's why when you turn on your television and you see 
the outright defiance against God and his word. One of the first things that comes to our mind is, how in the world? Jude says, I'll tell you how. They're animals. Whatever they believe, think, and promote, it's not spiritual. It's the flesh. It's the flesh. And this is what he says we must contend for. We must contend for the faith against these intruders because it's happened before and it'll happen again. These, these people of unbelief and rebellion and immorality, the devil is using them to creep into Christ's church and drag people away from authority and sufficiency in God's word. I see it every week of my life. People who used to serve, people who used to be here, where they started this little Bible study, where they read this little book, or they started following this politician, or this program, or attending this, this group of people, and the next thing you know it, those creepers, those intruders, they have pulled them away from the authority of God's Word. This is what we must contend for. This book is God's Word, and it is to His Word that we submit everything in our lives to everything. So what happens when a person rejects authority? The word of the Lord. Verse 5, he destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 6, he is reserved for them everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. What happens to them? Verse 7, they will suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. But God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But that the world through him might be saved. Any one of these things may describe you today, but it doesn't have to define your story. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Follow Christ See what he has done for you to forgive you of any and all sin. The Bible's clear. If we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that he is Savior, that God has raised him from the dead, we can be saved. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Judgment is coming, but not to the saved. Are you saved? Trust Jesus today. Trust Jesus today. Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm an unbeliever. I'm an immoral person. I'm a rebellious person. I've defied your authority. I've questioned your lordship. I've, I've mistreated your sacred things. But I'm sorry. Forgive me. I want to give my life to you. The wonderful thing is, the moment your faith is put in Christ, that moment God does exactly what you want him to do. He saves you. He saves you. Are you saved? Then be careful. Be on the lookout for ungodly intruders who want to pull you away from his authority.
Let's stand together for prayer this morning.